read along with me. Um, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to see what you have to teach us by your word concerning this call to the prophet Jonah. Lord, be with me. I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we went over the overview uh, last week, and um, as I'm sure many of you have read this book before, um, there are many things within the book of Jonah that are, are clear to understand. And first and foremost, that Jonah was a prophet called by God and commanded to go to a people to warn them of God's judgment. And second, that Jonah clearly disobeyed that command and was uh, subsequently disciplined by God uh, through the storm and, and a, a great fish, and, and as he was in the belly of that fish, he, he repented, and he, and he had a, a great repentance in chapter 2 in his prayer, and he was uh, then restored and, and recommissioned, and then he carried out God's command to go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Um, but in the end, uh, Jonah still pouted when God uh, brought about a great revival through him. And uh, the, these things are clear from the book, and um, you know, probably what stands out most clearly to us is the fish, or, or um, just his journey to Nineveh and the great repentance. Um, these things are clear, and um, we could see some clear implications and applications uh, through that concerning the character of God, his mercy, his compassion, his grace um, to uh, the peoples, to um, see them repent and believe, to turn from their sin. And uh, we see those uh, clear implications and applications for our own lives. Um, yeah, we are to go. Um, we don't receive prophetic calls like Jonah did, um, but we do have a clear call through God's word to um, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, um, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to um, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and all, all those other commands for, um, for husbands and wives and parents and children and, and uh, uh, employers and employees, um, we have a calling as Christians. And uh, there are implications um, and applications from the life of Jonah that we are um, reluctant to follow those callings, and, and we can make excuses, and we can shrink back at God's clear commands like Jonah did. Um, and so there, there's many things for our own lives to learn, but tonight we're going to look at God's call to Jonah, which it was a dangerous calling. It was very dangerous for him to go, and, and Nineveh was probably about um, roughly 500 miles away from um, Israel, 
It was a, a dangerous city, a dangerous um, country. Um, and throughout the Bible and, and even in church history, we, we can see that there have been many men who have received dangerous callings from God. Um, but in, in thinking about those callings, I, I don't think any of them can really compare to Jonah's calling. Um, I, I, I thought of um, just in, in recent church history of, of the Scottish reformer John Knox, who um, during the, the reign of Bloody Mary, and um, at that time in England and Scotland, was um, persecuting um, Protestant Christians, and, and he, was, um, he was acting as a bodyguard for a certain preacher, and, and there, there came a point where um, he was called out <laughs> to preach God's word, and he, he ran away, and he ran into a room, and, and uh, he cried. He cried because uh, of the call to preach. Um, I think of the, the other prophets who were called by God. Um, I think of, of Jeremiah in his call, and he said, Ah, but Lord, I am but a youth. And God said, Don't say you're but a youth. But I will give you the words to speak. I have known you um, while you're in the womb. I've called you. Uh, you think of Moses. It's probably the closest comparison to Jonah, to Jonah's dangerous calling would be Moses. Um, to at that time, the Egyptian empire was the strongest empire in the world, um, the strongest army in the world. Um, all the Israelites were enslaved, and, and, and here's Moses called to go by himself to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. And Moses was a bit reluctant, and he, he made the excuse that he can't speak well. Um, but Moses didn't run the other way like, like Jonah did. Um, so Jonah perhaps had the most dangerous calling in history, and, but he was disobedient. So e even though his calling was dangerous and it was foreboding, um, it still doesn't diminish his, his disobedience. But it does help us to understand a bit more about why he disobeyed and, and, and um, his life. And in, in looking at Jonah's calling, I, I, I see that there are three elements which really help stand out and help us to gain a better understanding of God's call to Jonah. And, and first and foremost is the context of Jonah. That, that Jonah didn't just um, pop out of nowhere. And as we read the Bible, it, it seems like that. And, and oftentimes the Bible gives us um, snapshots. It doesn't give us the video of the lives of the people in the Bible. It gives us those snapshots and, and pieces together. And there, are, there is a great deal of white space, and, and we can make some educated guesses and assumptions, but um, we, we need to uh, keep them in that category, that they are assumptions. But there are some things to learn. Uh, the context of Jonah starts with, first and foremost, that he was a prophet. And he comes from that prophetic context. He comes from a, a, a line of prophets. And um, the office and calling of a prophet was to speak God's words to God's people. That in, um, from the giving of the law onward, um, the people of God primarily just had the first five books of Moses. And, and those, those um, scrolls, the Torah scroll was primarily kept in Jerusalem. There was times when um, 
the word of God was hidden. It was neglected. Um, you think of the, the time in the, the, of King Josiah where they didn't have the word. He found it in the, in the temple. It, it was buried. And, and there was, there was time, the, the word of God wasn't as available to the people as it is now. Um, however, God sent prophets. He sent prophets to speak his words to, to the people and primarily to the king, to the rulers, to the leaders of Israel, that, that they were um, commanded and responsible to lead God's people according to God's word, according to the law that he had written through um, Moses. And, and there were other prophets besides those who wrote. Um, we, we think of um, during the time of Elijah, that Elijah had... Um, hidden the prophets. He says I, I, he's hidden the prophets in caves um, from, from Ahab and Jezebel. Um, and throughout the whole Old Testament, there's, there's um, hints at, that there were more than just those main prophets who wrote. There's many prophets. And there is, there is a history and a heritage of the prophets that, that they not only spoke God's words to the king and to the people, but they proclaimed God's judgment. And, and that's primarily what stands out, is that they proclaim God's judgment to his people. And if you would, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And this is, this is at a time that is um, <clears throat> not too long after um, the... Ministry of Jonah. It's it's not too long after his ministry, and it's about the time that um, that Israel is being taken away of captive. So, Second Kings chapter seventeen, and I'm gonna you can follow along in verses thirteen to twenty three, and it, it's talking about what happened. Why, why Israel was taken away. And it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. That was, that was their main office and calling. That, that was the job of the prophet. It goes on and says, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. 
And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants of prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That happened in 722 BC, and it was probably about roughly uh, 50 years or so after the prophecy, uh, the prophecy of Jonah, after the time of Jonah. And Jonah goes to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, who would take Israel captive. And take them away, the ten tribes of Israel. Judah would remain until 586 when, when Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar would, would come and take them captive. But Israel went away first. And, and, and we see this, this history and heritage in, in this account of the fact that God sent them prophets. He sent them prophets all from the time of Judges on. And, and, and as Israel got more and more wicked, he sent them more prophets to proclaim the law to them, to call them to repent, to believe, to follow um, the law that he had given them, to obey him. And so Jonah comes from this history, this heritage of the prophets in, in his calling. You can see this. Jesus talks about this, too, in, in his parable to uh, uh, his parable in, in Mark chapter 12, his parable of the vineyard. And you can turn there and see this um, about the prophets and their role. Mark chapter 12, in verses 1 to 9, he says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some, some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they kill, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that's exactly what God did. Um, and it's interesting that, that um, Jesus uses the illustration of a vineyard because that, that was what Israel was supposed to be. They, they were even considered um, as a vine. And, and there was, on top of the temple, there was a, a, a sculpture of, of, of a vine, of grapes. That this was what Israel was to be. And, and this is even listed in Isaiah. In, in, in Isaiah, in the beginning of Isaiah, 
the Lord calls Israel, he, he, he calls it a, a vineyard. He, he calls it, he, he says he's planted grapes. But he, he's planted grapes, but it, it planted a vineyard, but it's, it's, wield, it's yielded um, wild grapes. In, in Isaiah chapter 5, he, he talks about um, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this is Israel, the vineyard of the Lord, which did not yield the grapes which he looked for. It yielded wild grapes, and so he sent to them servants. He sent to them prophets. And Jonah is in that context, in that heritage of the prophets to call out to the people of God to repent, to follow God's law, and to obey Him. And and this call to Jonah, this wasn't the first call. Because there's one more text that shows that that Jonah was called before this time. In the beginning of, of Jonah, it says, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we can look back. There's there's one text, and it may even be as a cross-reference in Jonah. Um, But there's one text that shows a little bit about his personal context. 2 Kings 14. And in 2 Kings 14... talks about who he ministered to, to King Jeroboam II. Second Kings 14, verse 23, says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohemath as far as the sea of the the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, 
Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. We see here that Jonah was prophesying to Jeroboam and the people during Jeroboam's time. And there was a bit of prosperity. Jeroboam had expanded the borders of Israel during that time. Even though Jeroboam was, was evil, and he did evil, the Lord had mercy on him. And there's, there's some implications here. That Jonah's ministry to Jeroboam and Israel at the time was a lot easier than what he would be called to, to go to Nineveh. He, he, he did what the prophets before him did. He was called to the people of Israel. He was called to the king to tell the king how he should rule, how he should minister um, to the people as a ruler of the people. Though Jeroboam clearly did not listen to Jonah, um, there was a bit of prosperity. And at that time, um, Jonah would later go to Nineveh and the capital of Assyria. And at that time, the Assyrian Empire, they, they were growing, but they left Israel alone. They were still a looming threat, but for the most part, Israel had a certain time of relative peace. So we see that, that Jonah had a prophetic context. He had a personal context. But then there's also this political and cultural context that um, he ministered during the time of the divided kingdom. And if we know our Bibles, we, we, we know that the kingdom of Israel, it was one and it was um, prosperous under um, David and, and more so under Solomon. But then after Solomon died, um, it was divided in 931 B.C. And, and it was between his son Rehoboam, who did not listen to the advisors of Solomon, and, and he decided to listen to his friends and, and, and the young people and to do what he thought was best, and, and he actually made things harder for the people. So the people uh, left under the rule of Rehoboam, and they went to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who took ten tribes away from Samaria, from um, Israel, and he, he ruled in Samaria instead of Jerusalem. And only Judah and Benjamin remained in Jerusalem. And so we had that time forward, the kingdoms divided between Israel in the north, ruling from Samaria and the ten tribes, and Judah and, and uh, Jerusalem. And throughout the history of the kings and the prophets uh, in the divided kingdom, um, we can see that for the most part, um, all the kings were evil, especially in, in Israel, that many of the kings um, did exactly contrary to what God's law called them to. They worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. They did what the nations around them did. Um, they wanted to be like the nations around them. They didn't trust God. But in Judah, um, we would typically have one good king, then a bad king, then a good king, then a bad king, then a good king. Um, so 
Judah would flip-flop, go back and forth, but Israel was, for the most part, disobedient. And so they were taken away first. As, um, as the surrounding nations, um, and Israel was situated in, in such a way in the Mediterranean that, that um, they were a land bridge between the two major powers of Egypt and, um, and the Fertile Crescent where Assyria and Babylon would, and the empire of the Medes and Persians. And, and so they were, um, in a sense, at the crossroads of trade. Um, but the empires would, and the countries would rise and fall around them and, and all, always try to seek um, tribute from Israel. Because if they controlled Israel, they controlled the trade. And so oftentimes, uh, throughout the time of the divided kingdom, Israel would have to figure out who to cater to. Would they cater to Syria and send them tribute? Or would they cater to Egypt? Or, or would they cater to Assyria or Babylon? Or, or would they stick to themselves and try to capitalize on those trade routes and, and try to maintain their own sovereignty? And, and this wasn't just in Israel, but it was throughout the whole ancient world that and in a sense, it's still within our world today that um, those in power, the countries in power, exert their power, and those with lesser power have to pay tribute or have to um, ally themselves with those of greater power. And so this was the context that Jonah prophesied in. And during that time, um, the Assyrian Empire was, was raising in power. They were coming up in power and their dominance, and, and their capital would be around Nineveh at that time. And soon after Jonah's ministry, they would, they would rise higher in power to the point where the king Sennacherib would um, gain more and more land, more and more power, and he would take over Israel, almost taking over the whole land, uh, up until Jerusalem, and, and we, we can read that later on in, in, uh, during Hezekiah's time, in, in Isaiah's um, prophecy, and, and in uh, Second Chronicles, that, that the Assyrian Empire comes up and they surround, they, they not only take most of Israel, but they surround the capital and the Rabshakeh, the, the spokesman for the king, for Sennacherib, for the king of Assyria, comes and, and he, he calls Hezekiah. To surrender, and it's at that time that um, the angel of the Lord delivers them and uh, kills 185,000 Assyrians, and Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh to the capital, capital, and he's later killed. And soon after that, the Babylonians take over, and they take over control. But all that happened in that about 50 years after Jonah. There's also some other things and other interesting things that happened um, prior to the time of Jonah. And, and this is listed in um, one study Bible I looked at and, and is also listed in several commentaries. And it says that there was a plague in, in, the, in the year 765. And in the year 763, there was an eclipse of the sun. And a second plague in 759. And these 
These events were of the type regarded by ancients as evidence of divine judgment and could have prepared the people to receive Jonah's message. So it's interesting. Um, There's some interesting context to Jonah's um, prophecy. And and the lesson is that that no one one simply falls out of the sky. You know, And, and even in our own lives, and even in the people we talk to and we counsel with and we evangelize, no one falls out of the sky with a host of problems, trials, failures, and sins. Um, there's a context, there's a personal context, there's a family context, there's a spiritual context, and such was the case with Jonah. He had a, a prophetic context as coming from the line of all the other prophets. He had a personal context that he was a, a prophet and he was called to minister to the King Jeroboam Boam in a time where they have relative prosperity. And, and then there's also that political, cultural context of what's happening in the, the nation of Israel, in the divided kingdom, in the empires around them, and, and in the empire of Assyria. So first and foremost, we, as we look at the call of Jonah, we see the context of Jonah. Second, we see the commission of Jonah. In verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And this, this call, it's similar to what Jonah would pronounce on Nineveh. It's very simple. God's commission to Jonah really consists of three verbs. Arise, go, call. And as he says, arise, is the, the opposite isn't necessarily true. It's, it's not as if uh, Jonah was sitting down doing nothing. He was ministering, as we read. He, was, he did have a prophetic ministry. Um, and he was doing something. He was called to minister to the people at that time, to King Jeroboam. But as God says, arise to Jonah, it's, it's indicating something that, that he must prepare himself. He must prepare his heart and his mind and his will and resolve himself to leave his current ministry behind. That he must get up. And, and, and as in, in many parts of the Bible, it says to this phrase, gird up your loins, prepare for work, arise, get up, go. And so he's not just to make those necessary preparations to gather his stuff and to prepare to travel, but he's to arise mentally, emotionally, spiritually in his heart, mind and will and prepare to go preach the words that God gives him to preach. He's to arise and then he's to go. He's to take those necessary actions to get to Nineveh. Whatever that would mean, whether it would mean um, a a donkey and and a sack of provisions on that donkey or a camel or a group of men or servants to go with him. He's supposed to take action to actually get to Nineveh. And as he goes, he's, he's to also trust God's calling on him that God would provide and that God would not only provide for him, 
in the food, shelter, and clothing that he needs, but in the spiritual power, in the words, in the strength to preach the words that God would give him to go, to, to, to call upon them, to repent, to believe, to turn from their wicked ways. Jonah was to rise, to go, and then he was to call. He was to call out. And throughout the Bible, and especially in the, the prophets, there is this term um, to call, to preach, to cry out the words that God gives the prophet. Speak the words that I give you. Speak boldly. Speak authoritatively. Don't, don't let anyone disregard you, as Paul tells um, Titus and Timothy later on in the New Testament. And, and, and as I was, uh, you know, studying for this, this uh, passage in this sermon, I, I came across a, 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 some comments on this by um, the Puritan uh, Jonathan Edwards. And, and he comments on, on preaching and the call or the cry of the prophet by saying this. He's saying um, those texts such as Isaiah 58, 1, which say, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. And then in Ezekiel 6.11, Thus saith the Lord God, smite with thine hand, and stamp with thy foot, and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. I say these texts, however the use that some have made of them has been laughed at, will fully justify a great degree of pathos and manifestation of zeal and fervency in preaching the word of God. They may indeed be abused so as to countenance that which would be odd and unnatural amongst us, not making due allowance for difference of manners and customs in different ages and nations, but let us interpret them how we will. They at least imply that a most affectionate and earnest manner of delivery in many cases, becomes a preacher of God's word. Preaching of the word of God is commonly spoken of in Scripture in such expressions as seem to import a loud and earnest speaking. And this is what Jonah was supposed to do. To simply loudly, authoritatively, boldly, passionately proclaim the word of God against the Ninevites. To call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But as we read later on in Jonah and his disobedience. Jonah forgot something about God's calling. He forgot something about his heritage as a prophet. He forgot something about the history of the other prophets. That whomever God calls, he equips. And whomever God equips and calls, he goes before and with them. Just as I say earlier about Moses and, and how, how Moses um, was reluctant to go. And he made excuses. But to Moses, God says in Exodus 3.12, he says, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. To Joshua... He says in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
Jeremiah also, who um, kind of wavered a bit and, and made an excuse. To Jeremiah, he says in Jeremiah 1.8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And, and, and this is a reminder for us in, in the church age, as we are called to go to the people to whom we are sent, Jesus repeats this. To his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is part of the reason why Jonah disobeyed. Yes, it was a dangerous calling. It was a high calling. There was, there was, um, Assyria was the enemy of God's people, and they were ruthless. But he forgot that God goes with those whom he calls. And so Jonah shrunk back. He shrunk back and he disobeyed. So in, in, in this call to Jonah, in God's call to Jonah, we first and foremost see the context of Jonah. Then we see the commission of Jonah to arise, go, and call out to Nineveh. But third, we see the corruption of Nineveh. As God says, for their evil has come up before me. In this phrase, it could be likened back to a couple times in history when the evil of the people has come up before God. The time of Noah, the time of the people at Babel, when God goes down to look and see what they're doing. Um, but probably more, more poignantly in, 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 um, is the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. When, when, when God says to Abraham that they're, he's going down to see if the reports are true of their evil. And, and this, is, this is the level of evil in, in, in Nineveh. That Nineveh was corrupted. And they were corrupted first and foremost from the fall. That they, they had, like all of us, corruption within them from the fall. That we are all corrupted from our fallen nature. As uh, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we, we are familiar with our own sin and the sins of people, but there is a sense that um, we sin in, in a way in which we were created for our purpose, but not that we would follow the exact express purpose for which God created us, but we, we, um, we do the exact opposite. God created us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 1.28, he gives this creation mandate to Adam. And he says, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created as worshipers of God. And, and, and how we were to do that was to have dominion over the rest of his creation. We, we were to expand God's kingdom on earth. We were, as we were created in his image, we were 
to almost spread that image all over the earth as we um, multiply, as we have dominion over this creation. We are to, in a sense, act um, as our creator, to have dominion over things, but to also um, show his likeness as we were made in his likeness and to fill the earth with his likeness. But rather than build his kingdom, we, we tend to build our own kingdoms. And, and this is what happens. This is part of the corruption of Nineveh. It wasn't just the, the legacy of Adam, but it was the legacy of Nimrod who built Nineveh. And we, we can see this in, in Genesis 10, in the table of the nations, when, when um, Nimrod first uh, is named, it says uh, in Genesis 10, verses 8 to 12, Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. And it's interesting because even archaeologists can trace um, the, the beginning of Nineveh all the way back to the biblical dating of the time of Nimrod. That he built Nineveh and as he, Nimrod, failed to um, obey God's command to be fruitful and multiply and, and, and subdue the earth, um, he decided to build his own kingdom. That's why it says he was the first mighty man. He would build, rather than build God's kingdom, he would build his own kingdom. And so then he started to erect the, king, the, the, the Tower of Babel. And, and it's interesting because even um, that name, uh, Babel, or Babylon, which that, that is referenced throughout the Bible, as almost the enemy of God, as contrary to God, contrary to God's uh, uh, purpose for mankind. And almost the center of sin and corruption. In another interesting passage <clears throat> concerning Nimrod and Nineveh is in Micah chapter, um, chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. And this is interesting because... It's a prophecy of the Messiah. Yeah, I'm sure you've all heard this prophecy before. Micah chapter 5, verses 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until a time when she who is in labor, has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He's speaking of Messiah, of Jesus. But then it follows, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. 
They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword in the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So, at that time, at Jonah's time, they, they saw Assyria as their arch nemesis. They saw Nineveh as that capital. They, 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 they saw it as um, coming from the line of Nimrod, that, that heritage, that legacy of um, an enemy of, uh, against God and his people. So the, the, the corruption of Nineveh, is a, is, it begins with the corruption from the fall, that they were corrupted from the fall through the legacy of Adam and the legacy of Nimrod. But their, their corruption, as we, we saw a little bit, is satanically inspired. As the, the enemies of God are always um, behind them is Satan. It, 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 they're satanically inspired. Satan is... Um, opposing God's people. In fact, the, <clears throat> the name Satan, the Hebrew term, uh, Shatan, Satan, it, it, it means um, adversary. It, it means um, the enemy of God, opposing God's people. So Nineveh was the en- enemy of God's people. Um, they were the enemy of God's people historically, politically, their empire, and religiously. Because the, the city was full of false gods and idol worship. Um, in, in fact, um, the name Nineveh, it, it kind of harkens back to um, Akkadian words for their gods. Uh, Ninus, uh, or a fish god. Kind of as if they worship fish gods. Um, and, and some people think they, they worship the same gods as... Um, the Philistines, Dagon, which had a human figure and a fish head. And it's interesting, and this is where the link, and we can make some assumptions and educated guesses, but we don't know for sure. But this may be part of the fish in Jonah's story. It may be that link because Jonah went down to Joppa, which was an area... Controlled by uh, Philistine territory and, and, and Phoenician sailors who worship fish gods, who worship their gods were of the sea and of fish, and and certainly it wasn't just one god, but several gods, and and we could see that hinted at in the name of Nineveh, and we and there, we, we know that they worship some of the same gods, and, and perhaps God was using the fish as almost like a lesson to Jonah. Um, that he would um, go to the fish people, those who worship the fish, to call them to repent. Um, <clears throat> and so we see that Nineveh was corrupted from the fall. They were satanically inspired. Um, but even more so, what, what caused Jonah to shrink back and to run away was um, their notoriety that they were exceptionally evil in their lifestyles, in their customs, in their laws, in their conquests. Um, one, one commentator notes that, that they, they were extremely cruel in their conquests. They, 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 they didn't just kill the soldiers and capture the people like, like many empires did and, 
and, and enslave the people. But many times they would kill everybody. They would slaughter every, everybody in the cities. They, women, children, e even the animals a as a lesson. This is what happens to the enemies of Assyria. Um, but more than that, they, they, would, they would even um, take uh, um, the, the bodies and do all sorts of things with the bodies of the, the, the dead soldiers and the dead peoples. They, they would take um, human heads together and make pyramids with them. They, they would um, burn, the, burn the bodies. They, they would um, put them up on poles. They, they, and they were the, probably the first to, to um, invent uh, crucifixion. And it, it started with impaling. They, they started to impale the, the, their enemies um, on poles and, and let them sit there and die. And, and later on, that would um, be, uh, be further um, crafted into crucifixion to be even more torturous. They, they threw dead bodies all over on mountains and into rivers. They, they uh, would, would cut the hands from the kings that they con conquered and nail them to walls. Um, they would flay their... Um, their uh, enemy soldiers alive, skin them alive. They would use some of those human skins as lampshades. Um, they were evil. They were exceptionally evil, wicked. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with them. He, 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 he didn't even want to pronounce judgment on them. And partly, probably because he was afraid. But as we see later at the end of the Jonah it wasn't just that Jonah was afraid and disgusted and, and angry at the Ninevites, but he was, in a sense, um, he was racist. He, he didn't want God's grace to extend to the Ninevites. He, he, even after they repented, um, Jonah, he went down and he said, um, he said to God, he said, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's almost like I, I knew you would save them. I knew that you would have mercy upon them. I knew that you would have compassion upon them. I knew that you would bring about a revival. I knew that you would save them. And he hated them so much. He despised them so much that he didn't want any of them to be saved because of, of their notoriety, because of their heritage, because of their legacy. And, and there is a connection to the evil of the Ninevites and the evil of our day. We, we think about what God said at the end of of Jonah in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God says, They don't even know their right hand from their left. And, and he's speaking spiritually. And, and it doesn't take much to look around at our, our day and age and see that many people in our day and age don't know their right hand from their left. They don't even know if they're a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. 
Some, in some cases, they, they don't even know if, if they're human. They, they want to live in a fantasy world. It's how depraved, how corrupted they are, that they don't know their right hand from their left. It, it, they want to be something other than human. This, this concept, there, there's this uh, new group of people called furries. That they think they're a cat or a dog. And, and, and we live in a day and age where we can have cosmetic surgery. So not only um, if, you want, if you're a man and you want to be a woman, can you um, externally make yourself look so. Um, and to some degree, uh, very plausibly, um, in a sense, so much so that you can trick other people. But we live in a day and age where people can get implants of, of hair and fur and, and make their faces somewhat animal-like. Not completely, but this is how corrupt our people are today. They're exceptionally evil. And yes, we, we aren't at the stage where we're torturing people like the Assyrians, but you look at abortion. The fact that we're murdering babies, murdering babies in the womb, probably the safest place for a human being on the face of the earth is the mother's womb. And they know what they're doing. And they're not just murdering babies, but they're selling their body parts. And it's not just the people. that It's the whole industry. Millions, billions of dollars made off of the body parts of children. Sorry, organ harvesting, uh, gene therapy, stem cell research, all from little babies made in the image of God. And, and it's not just the industry, it's our politicians that are creating laws to make sure that we protect these people who are doing these atrocities. And, and not just the people that are doing the atrocities of murdering children, but of... Uh, defaming the image of God for men who want to be a woman or a woman who want to be a man and even exalting them to a high place of office in our government. Our day and age, our culture, our country, our civilization is wicked, evil, exceptionally evil. And this is... This is what God said. This is what God said would happen from the beginning of the, of, of the fall, from since man fell. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1, and, and Paul, um, Romans is probably the, the greatest, most systematic um, teaching of the gospel. And it begins where we should begin in our gospel proclamation. That we, we need to tell people of the judgment of God. As, as Jonah was sent to the people of Nineveh and said, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed, we need to warn people of God's judgment. Because if we don't warn people of God's judgment, they won't seek God's grace and mercy. And in chapter 1 of, of, of Romans, 
The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on and he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is what's happening in our nation, in our civilization. And in fact, this is what's been happening since the fall of man. This is what happened at Nineveh in their evil, in their um, bloodlust, in their idolatry. And this is what's going on in our country. That we are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. We have exchanged darkness for light and bitter for sweet, as Isaiah says in chapter 5. We've turned everything upside down. The people of our day and age don't know their right hand from their left. And yet we are called to shine as lights in the midst of this darkness. We are called to these people. We are called to the Ninevites of our day and age. To first and foremost proclaim God's holiness and his judgment. But then to understand that God may relent. And he may save some of them. And he may have mercy upon them and compassion on them. And so we must go in the boldness that God gives us and the strength that he provides by the power of his spirit. And we must proclaim to the people of our world, to our Ninevites, that the judgment of God is coming. But there is hope because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe upon the gospel. For he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, giving proof by, through a man, giving proof by raising him from the dead. And that is our call. And so we, we see in the life of Jonah and his call, a little bit of our call, that Jonah was... He did have a context, as we have a context. 
He was commissioned, as the Lord Jesus commissioned us, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And he was told to go to a corrupt people and exceptionally evil people, which we are called to do ourselves. And so we can see a little bit of why Jonah disobeyed and shrunk back. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we disobey and we shrink back as well. Heavenly Father, help us not to shrink back, not to disobey your calling, but to go forth in your power, in the power of the Holy Spirit, with your word, to proclaim your character of mercy, of grace, of love, but also of justice and holiness and wrath to the people of our day and age, that they may repent. And we pray, Lord, that you would save those to whom we go to and those to whom we share the gospel. Give us opportunities to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim your character, to proclaim who you are, But Lord, also give us the wisdom and the power to do so for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.